0: As we come off a great series about what it means to uh, be redeemed and recovering redemption, we've been in the weeds for about three months now. And as we look forward to a lot of people in our church who may not be Christians yet, they may not be believers, we want to take a week today and just look at how do we as Christians, how do we as believers profess what it is we believe? How do we take the message as Christians that we've been given and take it out in the world? How do we talk about Christ in a way, what he's done, what he will do, that is gentle and respectful, like Peter says? For many of us, and myself included, when this comes up, we immediately get tense. We feel backed into a corner Um, right away. We're intimidated. We feel like we'd rather go hide in a closet, go dig a hole when this stuff comes up than talk about it with somebody else. We think we're not cut out for this. We think that it's just not the way we're wired. And then there are some of us who Jesus makes it into every conversation regardless of what's being talked about. We love talking about it. We have no uh, fear, no anxiety about it. Wherever you fall, though, whatever camp you fall in, we all recognize the need to talk about Christ. We're all called to do it. And I would actually say that it doesn't matter who you are. We all have a way Of talking about Christ, and we can all be extremely evangelistic. Because when we look at a passage like this from 1 Peter, there are a lot of ways to show Christ to the world. So I want to walk through this passage kind of slowly and just see what comes of it. What does Peter, who was second in command to Jesus when he was on the earth, what does he have to say about being evangelistic, having a defense for who we are in our faith? But first, let's talk about the ways our culture influences how we interact with the world and how we bring the message to it. Because up until recently, the West was still pretty heavily influenced by the church. But being influenced by the church is a little bit different than being influenced by Christianity. Because by its very nature, Christianity can never really saturate culture. Christianity will always be at odds with the world. What we have today, and in much of the world, where our faith is at odds with the mainstream, is inevitable. Christians have one kingdom in mind while we call another one home. Our allegiance is ultimately always to the kingdom of God. It's like living in Denmark or Scotland as an American citizen. You may go there to work, but you are an American citizen, You may live in one place, but home is somewhere else. You still love the things of America even though you may be somewhere else. The only difference now is that a lot of people today simply don't know hardly anything about Christianity other than what they hear in the news. And even if the news isn't negative, the way it's reflected often is. Some don't even know about Christianity's Jewish ancestry. We had kids in our own youth group last year of Focus who didn't know Adam and Eve were in the Bible, who didn't know Adam and Eve were part of the Christian story. But it's not their fault. We, as the church, still assume that a lot of people know the basics about our faith, about Christianity, when they don't. Even as Christians, we may say we're the people of the book, But a recent study done by Lifeway, who is a Baptist organization, they found that 45% of people who say they go to church regularly only read the Bible once a week or less. And they found one in five of those people who go to church regularly check the box that they never read the Bible. So how do we, if we're the people of the book, if that's how we read the book, How can we be offended and shocked when those outside the church don't know anything about what's inside? So this gives us a few things to keep in mind when we talk about evangelizing to the world. There are a lot of people who don't know much about our Christian faith. What they do here is often negative, and there really isn't that much guilt anymore attached to not being part of a local church. In the past, if you were a cultural Christian, just meaning if you were a Christian, you thought you were because you're an American, you may have still gone to church three to four times a month. You may have gone to all the pitched in lunches. You may have sent your kids to church camp, yada, yada, yada. But since those things are no longer culturally expected, there's not any more guilt attached to them. It's like how you and I probably didn't feel guilty about not going to a Jewish temple service Friday evening. Did anyone else know they were going on? No. It's not on our radar. Just like how now for most of the world, church going on right now is not on their radar. But even the Apostle Paul Uh, Gives us some peace about this. We may feel shocked. We may feel offended. We may feel like we're losing some of our Christian ground as the world becomes more and more secular. But Paul says, have peace about it. Even from him in Romans 10, he says this How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So it's clear from this passage that if someone hasn't heard the gospel in its entirety, like lo- like a lot of the world hasn't, how will they believe in Jesus? But this is actually a call to action. How will they hear without someone preaching to them? And preaching doesn't require a pulpit and a microphone. Preaching requires being active in your world. So with some background of our culture and uh, where are we at right now as Christians in a in a non-Christian world. How do we interact with that? Let's begin walking through this passage, take it slowly, and see what Peter has to say to us. We should note that this whole book of First Peter is about living your faith out in the middle of a world that is offended by it. It's about living your faith in the middle of a world that's offended by it. Just because we live in America, that doesn't any longer mean that you're a Christian And it doesn't any longer mean that the church's mission has changed either. We can still be Christians in the middle of a world that's offended by our message. Peter's writing this book, and he refers to where he's at as Babylon. And Babylon was how a lot of first century Christians referred to Rome. By using the term Babylon, Peter is just acknowledging the idolatry, the uh, pagan idol worship, That's going on in Rome at the time. When you have all these idols that you worship, there's not a lot of place for someone to say there's only one true God. They would actually use these kind of code names like Babylon for Rome. So that if these letters fell into the wrong hands, like the government or just anti-Christian groups, people would be harder to track down. And believers in Rome at this time were being killed simply for being Christians while Peter is writing his letter. Around the year 65, the Emperor Nero of the Roman uh, Empire was using Christians as lamps at his parties. And this is the same year, about within a few months, of when Peter is writing his letter. Peter and the people receiving his letter are very much aware of what real persecution looks like. And that's kind of the background, the backdrop for how Peter is addressing his people. They are very well acquainted with real persecution. But Peter says, have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. There are people ready to knock down your doors because of your confession as a Christian that Jesus is Lord, but you still shouldn't worry. The promises that God has made will always be superior to the threats the world has made. And being zealous for good will always bring with it people that will scoff at you. But there's blessing in the middle of suffering when you're doing good, when you're living at your Christian faith. Take examples from your own life. Maybe at work, perhaps the culture is do as little as possible to keep the doors open, right? Just top down, bottom up, let's just do as little as we have to to get the job done. But as a believer in Christ, you feel compelled, you feel called to work hard for your boss, to work hard to make your co-workers' job easier, to work hard for your family, to work hard to set an example for your children. But in the middle of that, the, your co-workers may very well think you have ulterior motives, and it's just not a pleasant work environment. But there will come a time when you will be able to answer their questions about why you work the way you do you'll be able to give a defense for why you do what you do. Or maybe in your home, you may be the only or one of a few believers. So when you take a week off of work, when you take a week of your hard-earned vacation and you go spend a week with 200 smelly students at church camp, you're met with joking, you're met with ridicule, you're met with scoffing. But there will come a time you will be able to give a defense for why you do what you do. And this should give us a semblance of peace when we do talk about Christ. There's blessing in it, regardless of what happens. We may not see the fruit of our of our message, but it's there. Who is there to harm you for doing good? What could they do or even just threaten to do that could dismantle or do away with the promises God has made to us? Ultimately, it's a choice of whose promises you believe are eternal. When you give an offering and the world thinks it's just for tax purposes or you take a week of vacation to go build habitat houses and you just sweat for a week, you know there's nothing anyone can do to take away the blessing you've received from doing that. But of course, there are times when you do need to simply preach the gospel with your words. But sometimes the best way to talk about Christ is just to act like Him. The church built the first hospitals and the first universities. The church has built thousands of orphanages that take care of children that has no one else to take care of them. The church feeds the homeless in cities all over the U.S. You saw last week how without the church, democracy has a hard time functioning. The world gets to see Jesus in our actions and our behavior. Every time you give yourself to a cause that glorifies God, you get to show the world more of God's character. Then when your behavior seems at odds with the mainstream, chances are you're doing something right because Christianity can never really saturate culture. It's a collision of kingdoms. But we have a great record of people from the early church up through today who believed in the blessing among the suffering of doing good and proclaiming the gospel with your words and your actions. One such man was the Apostle Andrew. He was first a disciple of John the Baptist, and then he was the first disciple of Jesus. The last time he's mentioned in the Bible is early on chapters 1 or 2 of the book of Acts. But we know from other early books that after Jesus ascended, he went around to the area surrounding Greece, and he preached. Unfortunately, he was also crucified for his preaching, for living out the gospel. When he was crucified, he lived for two full days. And that was more common. Jesus died in a few hours, but most crucifixions where he was just tied to a cross took two, three, four, or five days. Some lasted a week. But the story to go on... That during those two days, when people came to see how someone could die for such an insane, foolish message, he continued to tell them about Jesus as they came to his cross and watched him die. Like the other disciples, Andrew was called by Christ. He was present for all of his teachings. He saw all of his miracles. He saw Jesus feed 5,000 people. Then he saw him crucified. But then he saw him resurrected. And he saw him ascend to heaven. Andrew was a witness to all the major points of Christ's life, and it kept him motivated to take the message of Christ everywhere he ended up. Then eventually, all but two of the apostles, the witnesses to all that Christ did, would be martyred for their preaching. Peter, Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and Simon would be crucified. James the Greater would be killed by the sword. Thomas was killed by a spear. Matthew was stabbed in the back. And James the Lesser was stoned to death. But that kind of love didn't end with the first century. It didn't end with the apostles. John and Betty Stamm were missionaries in China in the 1930s. Then one day a local man came to their house and said, there are communist soldiers coming your way to capture you and kill you. Then when the soldiers arrived, they took the stamp to the communist headquarters John wrote a letter back to the missionaries he worked for, telling them what was going on. But that letter was never delivered. It was found among their clothes after they were killed. And he wrote at the end of it with Scripture, he quoted Philippians 1.20, May Christ be glorified, whether by life or by death. Later, when they were being taken to their execution, a Chinese shopkeeper went out into the crowd and tried to get the soldiers to stop the execution. But soldiers went into his home, they found a Bible and a hymn book, and then they dragged him out to be killed with the stams. When they were buried, the Chinese people who they had ministered to put on all three tombstones different quotations from Scripture about giving your life and glorifying Christ with your life. Some of you may have heard of Dr. Paul Carlson. Dr. Carlson traveled from California to the Congo to be a missionary medical doctor in the 1960s. And even among thousands of rebel attacks and just gruesome leadership, just maniacal leadership, Carson stayed behind when other missionaries went home. And because he was so dedicated to serving the world in the name of God, he was eventually convicted of being a spy, tortured and killed. But even the rest of the world, who was so often offended by the gospel, recognized what he had done in the name of God for the Congolese people. And the Congolese people had put on his tombstone, John fifteen, thirteen, greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for his friends. But all of us need to be able to have the story of the gospel and how Christ has saved you ready at all times. We have to be ready to give a defense, not just for our faith, but Peter says for our hope. So this implies a couple of things. We actually live today like we have hope for tomorrow. That means Christians don't walk around with doom and gloom on their lips about the current day of affairs because we have paradise on the mind. When the thief on the cross died, Jesus said to him, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Wherever these martyrs have gone, Jesus felt fit to call paradise. You may have heard of this before too, though. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Harsh words, but we have to have heaven on our mind in order to live in this world. When we focus on the eternal, the things that will last forever, the temporary state of affairs is far less intimidating. And that impacts how we minister and evangelize the message of Christ today in the present. Our message is that one day God will set the world to rights, that he did it in Christ, he's doing it in the church, and he will one day finish it. When the Apostle Paul compares the Christian life to running a race, he says that we run like what? Like we want to win. Winners always have the end in mind. We see the record of the Apostles and some current martyrs that evangelism is both word and deed. We talk to others about our faith so that they hear what God has done and what God will do. We are then sent to the world to show them what God has done. The gospel must meet both the head and the heart. Telling someone about Christ may put information in their head, but by you acting out the gospel, it touches their heart, and those things are inseparable. Now, we live in a culture where many still believe in a God, God may be totally impersonal, uninvolved, but there may or may not still be a God in many people's minds. God has no consequence in my life, and I make no consequence in God's life. A lot of people may uh, now say they're unaffiliated with religion, but it's hard to find someone that still just simply does not believe in a God. So what happens when you start to preach to someone that God is real, that God has a name, God is personal? that God came down to earth, really what you're doing is replacing one fact with another in their mind. People used to think of God as uninvolved, now they think of God as involved. And that might be a step in the right direction, but I know, and I'm sure you do as well, you know a lot of people who like to think that God is involved, but it kind of stops there. They don't feel like they owe God anything. God is still very much an abstract idea. And you don't serve and worship abstract ideas. God is still just in the mind. And as a church camp counselor, a Sunday school teacher, a small group focused leader, isn't that one of your biggest frustrations? That the information gets into the head, but it seems to just not often get to the heart. But God is after our hearts as well. He wants both. Telling people what the Bible says has to be done. You can't evangelize without it. That has to be clear. But if it ends there, the eyes of whoever you're talking to will often glaze over. I'm sure you've seen that happen. One of the things that makes truth stick is that you are totally transparent about how the truth you're conveying has impacted you for the better. How It's changed your life. And this goes for any truth, but especially for the gospel. If it sounds like you're just reading your notes... When you convey Christ to somebody, how will that ever change someone's life? So when you do talk to someone about what God has done, we always talk about it in the context of what God has done and what he will do. We defend our hope. Our hope is that God has secured the believer's place in his family, and when his son returns to bring the final state, his kingdom, we will be in a world free from sin with constant communion with our heavenly father. Now, we all know this one thing is true about human nature. If you are a preacher and you're out preaching and you hold yourself above the person you're preaching to, how likely is that person to give you an ounce of attention? Not very, right? The same goes for those who you wish to see in the kingdom of God. And I'm all for having conversations with people about the hope God has given you. But I'm not for holding your friends and family hostage, So how do we get to the point? How do we connect the head and the heart when talking about the things of Christ, about the things people, about people God loves? Really, one of the best ways is to get people to ask questions. How do you do that? Talk about your faith. Talk about your church. Talk about Jesus, among your coworkers, your friends, your family, and make it seem natural. Talk about the difficulties. Be honest, but don't be hesitant about what you believe. Also, don't tell them those things that you think they need to hear and just expect them to grasp onto it. Rick Warren says that most people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and that goes for most people. You have to invest in someone before you really give them the gospel. So when you take a week off work to go build habitat houses, when you send your kids to church camp, when you force your kids to go to youth group, how dare you, When you do those things, you have to give a defense for why you do them. You are investing in the children, you're investing in your own faith, and when you have these conversations with people about why do you do what you do, you have been given a chance to give a defense, not just for your faith, but for your hope, and our hope is in a person. But this section of Scripture wraps up with the answer to the big why. Why do we even make the effort to tell others about our faith? Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The motivation for remembering that the sacrifice Christ made to bring you to his Father is the same sacrifice he made to bring those you love to his Father. He died to make you righteous before God so that you can do the same for others, so you can give your life for others. Only Christ can save them, but by giving yourself to all the causes that glorify God, you reach others, you touch their head and their heart, and there's no shortage of roles to play in the body of Christ. But remember that as a role in the body of Christ, no one does it alone. When Christ and his disciples to teach and preach, he never sent anyone alone. So if evangelization intimidates you like it does me, don't do it alone. If you enjoy it, if it's your second nature, don't forget that you need to be gentle and respectful. But we all need to remember that while we have been made children of God, while we have been made heirs to his kingdom, we don't have the right to hoard the beautiful gospel message we've all been given. When Jesus met his disciples in Galilee for the last time, before he went to heaven, he said these words, all authority in heaven and on earth Has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that you died to defeat death and save us from ourselves. You have given us a task to go out and give that message in both word and deed. So please give us the courage when we are prompted by your spirit to speak and act how you would have us to do so. May others come to know of your infinite love and mercy because we were faithful. In your son's name you pray. Amen.